I hope you had an enjoyable Christmas day and that this week has been wonderful with all your family and friends and it's been some special memories for you. You know, everywhere in our culture at this time of year, there's always a review in pictures, the famous people who have passed away. They love to review all the big storms of the year and new technologies that have uh, been invented and been deployed, all of that sort of thing. And some of us here like to enjoy reflecting and back on 2018, uh, but many of us like to look forward to 2019. And whether you find and can't wait for 2018 to pass because of all the pain and the hardship and the difficulty that you've experienced in this year and you want it to just go behind you, or whether you're just so excited about looking ahead, maybe a new baby's on the way or a wedding is planned for the spring, Maybe you've got some great plans for your business to expand, whatever that happens to be. And you want to just go ahead and copy 2018 or most of it and paste it into 2019. Whatever that is, I hope that for all of you, as you seek to honor God and the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be His hand and feet of blessing to people out in society. If you are here and uh, you don't know much about God or you're not sure what you think about Him or Christ or the Bible, This morning's talk is not really prepared for you. I put it together primarily for those of you that are followers of Jesus Christ. You say that Jesus is your Savior, and that's uh, who I've directed the talk to. And Jesus gave many warnings and difficult lessons, and this morning is one of them. But my real motive in choosing this topic is so that you'll experience true freedom and lasting joy that comes with agreeing with Him on whatever the subject is. God wants any of us who have a locked heart to have it unlocked so that we're free to live out His love to the people around us and to know the real peace which passes understanding. I want the Lord's best for all your families and you individuals. And we want to facilitate reconciliation here. We're ambassadors of reconciliation. We want to help prevent marriages from having crisis and dissolving. And there are just too many barriers that are erected between people because of little offenses and annoyances that are left unresolved. And I want us, if we heed Jesus' words today for the rest of your life, you will experience incredible joy, far greater than you have before. Please don't take this talk as a downer. Proverbs chapter 15 says this, He that listens to a life-giving reproof will be at home among the wise. And my ninth grandchild, Liam Brady, is going to be born sometime this week, it appears. And so Liam, this talk is dedicated to you. I hope that you'll come to know the Lord Jesus because it's only through Him that you can live a life of love. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, some of us in 2018 have had just a long string of one blessing, one joy, and one accomplishment after another. Others of us here, 2018 has been just a horrendous time of pain and loss, trial and difficulty. But whichever camp we're in, we want to give you praise and thanks for who You are, for Your love through us, through Jesus, and for Your willingness and power to be able to take even the worst circumstances 
and bring about good from them. I thank You, Lord, for providing a way of peace and reconciliation so that we can help people to love one another. And reward and bless those present today with Your fellowship because You love them very, very much. And may they embrace in their heart the fullness of Your words. Amen. In the 1970s, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, they would fight three times for the world championship in the heavyweight division. Muhammad Ali would win the last two. And so Frazier would be interviewed by ESPN in October of 2007. And here is what they wrote. Quote, Smoke and Joe Frazier's blood still boils at the sight or even the thought of Muhammad Ali. For Frazier, neither time nor, nor shared infirmities have softened his heart. He always has been a hard man and there is no harder place inside him than the spot still occupied by Ali. It's a large spot where the bruises remain even after all these years. Ali called Frazier a gorilla. And when he portrayed him as an ignorant tool, and worse, an Uncle Tom, Frazier never recovered. Quote, God might not like me talking that way, but it's in my heart. I hated that man. How would you feel if your kids came home from school crying because everyone was calling their dad a gorilla? Twenty years I've been fighting Ali, and I still want to take him apart piece by piece and send him back to Jesus. Even all these long years later, Frazier, a man who willingly accepted pain for the chance to inflict it, can't forget the ache of 35-year-old insults because they cut too deep. And like Joe Frazier, we have all been hurt by someone else's words, neglect, or unkind actions. A father tells you you're stupid. A mother says you'll never amount to anything. A long-term boyfriend says goodbye because you're not as pretty or as interesting as the new girl. A fellow student mocks your skinny frame or the thick glasses you're wearing. Some adult verbally abuses and undresses your son or daughter over something so small with loud, condescending words, leaving your blood just boiling inside. A son steals from you to fund his drug habit. Someone spreads lies about you. Another one rejects you and you don't even know why. And because of all these realities and many more, I chose this morning's topic to truly help you in the rest of your life and so you can pass on this teaching of Jesus to many others that I know are in desperate need of it. For many reasons, I have observed a lot of people's history and seen it unfold. And sadly, I've known the consequences of even a small amount of bitterness or resentment or unresolved conflict or rejection and what it does to marriages, families, and Christ's body. And so my talk today is entitled, God Won't If We Don't. And knowing that a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't falling apart, please take it and turn to Matthew, the 18th chapter. Matthew chapter 18. 
By now, the context uh, for this is that Jesus has already taught the disciples a number of parables. They've observed the multiplying of the fish and the bread in the feeding of the 5,000. And also they've seen Jesus walk on water and rescue Peter when he got out of the boat. They've, had, they've seen and listened as he's verbally rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Jews in various conversations. And now he's near the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus went up into a mountain and sat down, it says in chapter 15. And in doing so, all of these people, blind and crippled, and those who couldn't speak, all came to him, multitudes, to be healed. And he healed them all. And everybody there was amazed, and they glorified the God of Israel. And so Jesus has already told his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to be betrayed by the chief priests and the Sadducees and the elders and be killed and rise again the third day. And eventually they come to Jesus in chapter 18 and verse 1 and they say, Hey Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And in answer to their question, Jesus takes a little child and he sets the little child right in the middle of them. And in summarizing the various accounts in the Gospels, he basically says, you want to become great? Then become simple and trusting as this child. Hey, if you want to be the greatest, you need to be the servant of everyone. And he highlights the value of a child and charged them not to cause a little one to stumble. And then he shifts gears a little bit and Jesus continues later in chapter 18. Moreover, if your brother sin against you, he says, And he goes off to explain in some details and guidelines on how that should be approached by the individual sinned against and then the congregation at large if necessary. He laid the responsibility for seeking reconciliation primarily upon the one who had been wronged, who had been sinned against. In another place, Christ revealed just how critical it is to reconcile relationships when he admonished, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled unto your brother. In principle, get up from the communion table. Skip the worship time. Exit the church service. Leave your prayer closet. Go and be reconciled. And it is only after all proper exertions have been made that we can treat somebody who says they believe in Jesus as if they don't. And you know, often the key to understanding a parable is to consider the door through which we enter. And so having considered some of the context, let's consider the Lord's illustration in the parable of the unmerciful servant. The parable of the unmerciful servant or unforgiving servant. Verse 21. Now a parable is a process in nature or a scene in human life, leaving behind it, or having behind it, excuse me, a spiritual lesson. Think of it as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He spoke parables partially to attract attention. Because whether you're young or old, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're educated or uneducated, we all are captivated by a very good story. And almost all the parables are meant to enforce one main truth. His parables either revealed or they concealed the truth. 
depending on how you listened. The one who heard only a story, they walked away. But the one who perceived that the story contained a deeper meaning and a spiritual lesson, they'd be disturbed to discover what is that meaning. And so we don't want to, when we look at this parable, we want to keep our eyes focused on what the main lesson is. We don't want to look at every single detail and assign meaning to it, or we'll get distracted. We don't want to divide the river of truth into so many different streams that the clear part of the water becomes no longer recognizable, and it's just like channels of water in a desert that disappears into the sand. And Jesus could tell the story any way He wanted to. He selected the characters. He selected the time and the event. And He was always impeccable on His timing as He was here. Because some of the disciples, as we saw in verse 1, had just finished saying, hey, who, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And that meant that some of the others might have had in their heart already some jealousy, some resentments building up. And so He addresses forgiveness among them. First, we're going to read the parable. Then we're going to look at the main point of the parable. And lastly, some practical principles that the parable teaches. So follow along with me, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Some of your versions will say 70 times 7. I don't want to take time to explain that this morning. So the parable comes out of Peter's inquiry. How often should I forgive him? Seven times? And can't you just see Peter? He is feeling overwhelmed by a sense of generosity. <clears throat> but Jesus responds with a very fine satire that's as powerful as summer lightning and as cutting as a sharpened knife. Hey, Peter and disciples, how about 77 times? And although Peter asked the question, how often? The question is not how often at all. The satire reveals that he's clarifying there is no limit at all to the number of times we forgive. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So the king calls his servants to account. And it's interesting to note that he has to ask him to come because you all know if you owe somebody a large amount of money, the last thing you want to do is drop by their house or call them on the phone and find out how they're doing. You need to be called to account when you have a big debt. And then it says 10,000 talents. In the understanding of the day, 10,000 talents exceeded any actual situation. Josephus, who was one of the early church fathers, he said that the total Judean tax for just one year was only 600 talents. Consider that one talent, just one, was equal to about 20 years' wages for a common laborer. So he's talking about here a mere 200,000 years of wages or labor to pay back the debt. Just the beginning of the illustration would certainly have them curious where he's going with it because the debt is so high. Verse 25, 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. You see, in that day, there were no bankruptcy laws. You couldn't go to the courthouse and declare chapter 11. This was not inconsistent with the customs and laws of the time. You owed that debt, it couldn't be paid, you could be sold, your wife and children sold, and all your possessions sold, and then that would go uh, towards the payment of the debt. You couldn't run down to the local Roman or Jewish 7-Eleven. Bring your camel in, give them some hay and some water, buy a gallon of goat's milk for your children while you're there, and then while you're at the counter paying a few more coins, you go, hey, I got an idea how to pay that debt off. I'll go ahead and pick my top six numbers. And then maybe I'll win the Judean lotto. And I'll have billions to pay the guy back. There's none of that kind of stuff at all that went on in that day. And while it's wise to get on his knees, this fellow is delusional, thinking that he will come up with some scheme to pay him back everything. And so is everybody who follows a religion or a religious philosophy that teaches that if you just stick to the rules, perform the rituals, you can earn your salvation or way to nirvana. Verse 27 and 28. And out of pity for him, or, or mercy or compassion, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. One denarius. It was a day's wage for a common laborer. So the 10,000 talents the servant owed was more likely 600,000 times more than the hundred denarii that the fellow servant owed him. Jesus used that sum of 10,000 talents to portray an almost unimaginable sum of debt. And it would take at least 150,000 years of labor to pay it off. The other guy owed, eh, 15 to 20 bucks. I mean, feel the contrast that Jesus is making between the two here. It's incredible. It's like, it's like you and I owing a private equity firm a billion dollars. And they meet as a board and they decide, ah, we'll forgive it all. And then what happens, we, we go home to our 5,000 square foot house where we're renting just one room to somebody and because they're behind on their portion of the electric bill, just by one day, we decide to go ahead and evict them. I mean, that, that scenario is absurd. And so is Jesus in making this contrast. Verse 29, So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and put him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him 
to the jailers or tormentors until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You see, the master revokes his clemency and delivers him to the tormentors or jailers. And so in verse 35, Jesus' response lays out a clear statement of conditional forgiveness. Conditional forgiveness. So now I want to look at the main point of the, of the parable. The main point is this. A forgiven person should always have a forgiving spirit. A forgiven person should always have a forgiving spirit. Jesus commands that we forgive others because of what He has forgiven us. God won't if we don't. And so turn to Matthew chapter 6, and it says this in verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, notice the word if, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses or sins, neither will your Father forgive your sins or trespasses. So how do we know that this has nothing to do with earning your salvation or salvation at all? How does it have nothing to do with losing your salvation? How is it that this is not a blatant contradiction to salvation by grace through faith. This passage is from the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the key phrases begins a little earlier in verse 5 when Jesus is saying, and when you pray, when you pray. So he, it, the topic is about prayer. And He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Go into your closet. And He elaborates. And then He gives them a template for praying, which is very familiar to all of us, called the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. And he starts that out, and this is very important. He starts it out and says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. <clears throat> you see, through Jesus Christ's payment on the cross, His shed blood, and then His rising again the third day, we through Him, God then becomes our Father. And although fellowship with the Father can be broken, God never stops being our Father. Furthermore, Jesus spoke of another Father in the Scriptures. In John chapter 8, in speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees and other Jews, He said this, I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. Then they claim that Abraham was their father, and Jesus goes on to say, quote, You are of your Father, the devil, and your will is to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, so on two different occasions, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 18, in the parable of the unmerciful servant, Jesus is teaching lessons that were nearly the same. And those lessons have zero to do with salvation and one's eternal destiny. It's this. If you get pardon from God, then you will give it to your Christian brother, your spouse, others you know. 
If you withhold it from them, it will be withheld by God from you. The severity of the king's punishment here actually illustrates how God the Father will discipline unforgiving believers to whom He is Father. He who does not forgive his brother, his friend, his co-worker, his neighbor, <clears throat> their spouse, their parents, will not be forgiven by their heavenly Father. Father's compassion is withheld from us because our refusal to be compassionate to others. So then what are the tormentors or the jailer <clears throat> that is referred to? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, it could cover a whole range of things from suffering from stress or depression or discouragement, relationship problems, other kinds of hardships that come along because of your refusal to forgive, replaying the words of the event or what somebody said to you over and over and over again is part of the natural consequence. Thinking again and again about the rejection, the pain, the neglect, and rummaging on that day after day, week after week. Perhaps some prayers go unanswered. And because unforgiveness is so completely foreign to what Christians should be from Jesus' viewpoint, He applies this warning particularly to that sin of unforgiveness. Corey Ten Boom was a prisoner of war in World War II. Her father and her sister were also in a German concentration camp. And uh, they died there. And Corey's sister died in her presence. And two years after the war, she said this, Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And now we're going to look at some of the practical principles. And rather than list these principles for you as if you know one by one and go down them as if we were in a classroom, I'm, what I've done is I've put a lot of them on slides and those will be on the website for those of you that would like to look at these uh, at the end. Uh, they'll be there uh, for you to see. But instead, I'm just going to sort of talk through a number of things as we proceed. Jesus said, now the kingdom of heaven has a king. And Jesus is the king. And so we are all debtors to King Jesus. Elsewhere in Scripture it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Debt in the New Testament is a common figure for sin. However, the parable is not suggesting that the debt of sin can be paid off with a bunch of money. Offering money will never atone for sin. In Martin Luther's day, remember, indulgences were sold for money. Actually, you were able to buy your salvation. How horrible was that practice? Thankfully, it ended hundreds of years ago. And you know, for most people, it's, it's a pretty easy thing to admit that they're a sinner if you define it for them, and you begin by just asking them, hey, have you ever lied? Have you ever taken anything from someone? Ever stolen? And you know, for most of us here as believers, it's pretty easy to say, yeah, look, I'm not perfect, and so I need a Savior. 
That's pretty easy to do. But it's entirely another thing to feel and acknowledge all that falling short of God's glory implies. And in the parable, when Jesus chose the number 10,000 talents as debt owed, He was implying that our debt, our sin to God, was beyond our true comprehension and could never be paid off by ourselves. It is not that any of you are terrible people. Not at all. But in comparison to God's infinite glory, the gap is beyond comprehension. There is an enormous difference between any human being on this planet and in history and the holiness of Almighty God. But the good news, or Gospel, the the fantastic news, in in the parable, is that the king was willing to forgive all the debt, no matter the sum of it, no matter how large, no matter how horrible the sins or how many there were. He was willing to forgive it all. Colossians chapter 2 puts it this way, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, referring to the law. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. When Christ pays the debt, it's no longer on the ledger. It highlights His amazing love for us. And it should bring us great joy, great hope, purpose in life as we go into 2019. I mean, His forgiveness is free because Jesus' blood paid the price. It's full. It covers every horrible thing we've ever done in the past and anything we might do in the future. And it's forever. Because after He had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, He sat down on the right hand of God. Free, full, and forever. So Jesus forgiving all this enormous debt forms the basis, the rationale, for us to be able to grant forgiveness to others. And if you are going to unlock your heart to be able to forgive somebody else, even those who never seek it, you must embrace the rationale for forgiving them. And then you must also do this. Leave the one who wronged you to God. Joseph did that with his brothers. You see it in Genesis 50. Hey, Am I supposed to be God? He had 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 an attitude of forgiveness to them when they showed up. In Romans 12, it says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And by so doing, you will reap burning coals on his head. And that we can't do that if there is resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness residing in our heart. 
Many of you are thinking, yeah, okay, but isn't there a difference between forgiveness and trust? Well, sure there is. I mean, can you imagine a 16-year-old son gets his license and you've purchased a much older car for him and that's what he's been practicing on. And so he asks, getting his license, Dad, can I go visit my friend? He's only about 15 minutes away. And you say, sure, son. And so he goes off. And you get a call just a short time later and he's had an accident. And you find out that he was texting on his phone when he got into the accident. And he asks your forgiveness. And you fully forgive him. And then later that evening, he comes back to you and says, Hey, Dad, can I take the family car out? I want to go join the guys at the movie theater. And you're like, what? Uh, no, you can't. And he goes, well, I thought you forgave me. Well, I did forgive you. Totally, completely. But you're going to have to rebuild some trust in terms of when you drive the car. And here's the plan that I've laid out for you. And so trust is then rebuilt. And we have to be very careful on this point because if we end up saying, oh yeah, I've forgiven. Christians do us, oh yeah, I've forgiven. But in our hearts and minds, we're thinking, you know what? I am never going to trust you again. Never. And I will not accept any effort you make to try to reestablish it. In hope, in fact, I don't really care to have anything to do with you ever again. Ever. That is not a forgiving spirit, friends. It is not. And so because of this, we are obligated to forgive those who have sinned against us. Because as the parable points out, using the contrast of 10,000 talents versus 100 denarii, our sins against God are far greater than someone else's sins against us, no matter what they have done. If God forgives the greater we must certainly forgive the lesser. Profound grace should make us profoundly merciful. What we owe to God is infinite, but what our fellow creature owes to us is a very small sum by comparison. Some places in the church teach that forgiveness is a gift that you give yourself. And while it's true that emotionally and physically you'll have an easier time if you're not nursing grudges, or cultivating bitterness, that is not the primary reason that you forgive. Turning a God-ordained command into a suggestion of helping ourselves feel better is to cultivate a humanistic, man-centered outlook rather than a Christ-centered one. Now I know some of you here have been profoundly hurt and wronged by someone else or a group of people. Far beyond what happened to Joe Frazier or the things I mentioned in the beginning of my talk. Consequently, this is really hard to apply to the one who sinned against you. I know a woman whose bones were broken from the abusive discipline of her mother. A man whose father beat him as a child, a small child, and then abandoned him at a trash dump to die. A man who is in his early teens was sexually abused by a relative. I know a woman who was gang raped <clears throat> twice by the same men the second time after they were released from jail. Remember Jim Sup's dear friend when he talked earlier in the year 
She was murdered by her husband, leaving behind multiple children. And I could go on and on about abuse and abandonment of spouses and families torn apart by war or persecution. And I may not be able to emotionally relate to all of you. In fact, I'm on the other side of the ledger. To me, to forgive is as easy as opening my hand. Those of you that have known me for a really long time, known that in my lifetime, I've had to forgive, uh, people have had to forgive me far, far more than I them. That's not a statement of humility, it's fact. And those of you who have known me a long time, thank you for not saying amen. But Jesus can relate to you. Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For because Jesus suffered when He was tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted or tried. Friends, Jesus understands what you went through, what you're going through, what your struggle is. So what do you do when you know you intellectually, theologically, you know you should forgive? Maybe even you thought, I did forgive. But every time you hear that person's name, you see them somewhere, you think about them, that negative rush of emotion just wells back up inside. So I'm going to tell you some things that are not laid out in Scripture as I'm going to lay them out. So they're in one sense extra biblical, but they're all true. And because of my age, I have talked with many people over decades, and this has helped many, many people who have struggled as believers to forgive others. First thing you do, write down all their wrongs and all the loss and all the emotional pain it's caused you. Be complete. Jesus does not want you pretending you were not hurt or wronged. That's why He said, if your brother sinned against you, go to him. So don't pretend. Write everything down. Then you're going to choose to accept the emotional pain they have caused you. Forgiveness is a choice that we make. We choose to absorb the emotional pain someone caused us and then forgive them. Why? Because Jesus chose to accept the mental, emotional, and physical abuse and pain that we caused Him and forgave us. So much more than the one who hurts us. And if you need to, just go ahead and also write down all the sins you recall that you've committed against your Heavenly Father. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It is a deliberate choice that runs counter to our bitter feelings, our resentments, where we want to dwell on the offense again and again. And then you will go to prayer before the Lord. And you'll look at that list. And you'll say, Heavenly Father, this person has sinned against me in this way. And it has crushed me. And I have lost a ton. But because of what all the debt, all the stuff that You've forgiven me, on that basis, I forgive them and I commit them into your hands. And so then you take that list and you throw it in the trash. 
And before you do, what you do is also you record the time. You record the place. You record the date somewhere when you prayed. And so that what will happen is the very hour later, when that person comes into your mind, all of that emotion is going to rewell up just like it did before, after you prayed. Or when you see them the next day. But here's what's going to happen. The Lord is going to remind you just like that. Wait a minute. It was just 10 minutes ago that I was on my bed in my bedroom and I remember praying and forgiving them everything because Christ forgave me. And I put it in the trash. No, I'm not holding it to their account. Oh, I remember just yesterday I was in my car when I went through this and I listed that and I prayed and I forgave them everything. And every time that the emotion tends to become and well up negative, the Lord will remind, no, no, I don't need to feel like that. I've already forgiven them. And you will find yourself set free very quickly. And if you want to speed up the process, it means this. Do something for that person. Bless them. Give them something. Do something good if they're still in your sphere. And you can. You will find yourself that you're free to love again and do good to the one who wronged you. And, and let me say this. You might have heard growing up, hey, forgive and forget. Forgive and forget. That's, that's nonsense. You're never going to forget. God does not zap you with some type of divine amnesia. Now, you might forget by the time you're my age because you forget everything. But, 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 but that doesn't come when you've been truly hurt and wounded. I hope that it does. It may fade way in the past. But God doesn't give you that. But what He does is He frees you from the poison. So you can remember whatever it is but there's no longer poison there. You're free to love the people just like Christ loves you. Corey Ten Boom again. It's two years after the war, 1947. She goes back to Germany with the message of God forgives. And it was a truth that they needed most to hear because of the bitter bombed out land. And so what would happen when she's done speaking? The people would never talk and they would get up and she says this, The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, and in silence they left the room. And that's when I saw them working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, and then in the next I had the flashback, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and its crossbones. And it came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shaved heads of the women. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Oh, my dear sister Betsy was so weak. And I saw her die. The place was Ravensbrook, and the man who was making his way forward had been a guard. One of the most cruel guards and now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. 
A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He wouldn't remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among so many thousands? And by the way, 94,000 women died in that camp. He said, I remembered him in the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips, Fraulein. Will you forgive me? And as I stood there, I whose sins had been again and again forgiven by God, I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out to me, but it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. But I knew I had to do that. And I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. Can I lift my hand? Can I do that much? You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand out into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulders, worked its way down my arm, and sprang into my hands. And then there was this healing warmth that seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. C.S. Lewis said this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. And because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you, so remember the parable of the unmerciful servant. Avoid the torments and consequences for not forgiving. Jesus commands that we forgive others because of what He has forgiven us. And a person should always have a forgiven spirit. A forgiven person always have a forgiving spirit. Let's pray. Some of you here right now, you're thinking of someone and it's been a struggle for you to forgive them. But the Lord has made you ready. So I'm going to help lead you in a prayer if you'd like to just get it behind you today. Heavenly Father, You have forgiven us so much. And yet there is a person or people that have pained me greatly. They've wronged me. They've done, they've really caused me a lot of grief and loss. 
And right now, the best I know how, because I realize all you've forgiven me, the 10,000 talents, I forgive them. I choose to do that and absorb the emotional pain and hurt they caused me. I forgive them completely and totally. And Lord, I thank You for forgiving me. Give me a chance to pray for them, to bless them, to do something good for them, and to release them into Your hands completely and totally to do as You see fit. Holy Father, we love Your Word. We thank You for it. And Jesus Christ, Your amazing love, bless these people in the new year that's about to happen. Give them great joy in the journey as they walk in every day as forgiven people, dispensing Your reconciliation and love to others. And we thank You in Christ's name. Amen.